In the USA, we talk a lot about identity. But are we really saying anything? Equality is the watchword of our pluralist society, but few people's stories are being told. Even fewer are being heard. Today, we ask sociologist Donald B. Crayville why. He is the distinguished college professor and senior fellow in the Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies at Elizabethtown College. And we don't want to face the reality, the hard reality, that if we had selected a different mother, even with the same biological stuff, apart from race and gender or sex or whatever, or, or the fact of uh, our father's occupation, would make a huge difference. And that's coming up right now. From sowingtheseed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, the podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. I'm pleased that we have Don Crable here as our first guest on the show. And as we talked about in the intro, you're trained as a sociologist. You do work in all sorts of disciplines, but your background, I guess doctoral training, is in sociology. That's right. Um, uh, I basically, there's a lot of different subfields in sociology. So, um, although my training was somewhat broad, it was in social psychology as a subfield inside sociology. Um, but then in the last 20 years or so, I've shifted much more toward cultural uh, analysis. And I really would, I think of myself as a cultural sociologist, I'm interested in how human communities construct meaning and how that's created and perpetuated and legitimated and so on. So. Okay, very neat. So, in terms of sociology, it's fair to say that you're, you're looking at sort of what's going on in people's minds as they're acting out socially and relating to each other. Is that sort of a fair... Well, I, I'm interested in the social, <laughs> and the social can be on a micro level like a handshake. Um, you know, you didn't offer me a handshake, and I don't know <laughs> what to make of that right. exactly. Um, so it can be a very, uh, at the low level, and it can be a macro structural level, in terms of social structures in the society, in terms of uh, how uh, the economy is structured, uh, the different tiers in, in, in hierarchy within societies, whether it's a, a small society, a basketball team, or if it's a, a world society. Mm -hmm. So sociology has a lot of flexibility in terms of where it points the spotlight, but um, one of the adages that um, I have always found helpful is, uh, things are not what they appear to be. So I may, you know, we may see things in daily life, but if we get behind the, the veneer of the house, so to speak, uh, typically things are different than what they appear to be. So appearances aren't enough. We have to dig deeper and try to unpack the social dynamics behind whatever the facade is. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk, you know, especially in the United States in the 21st century about all people in a setting being on an equal playing field or a level playing field. At least we're trying to get there. Um, but one of the sort of major pushbacks I'm hearing in culture is the fact that, well, we're not on that level playing field yet. And people have sort of different privileges based upon their social location, where they're mm -hmm. at. So mm -hmm. some people start out higher on the social ladder than others. And, you know, when you're looking at any sort of cross-section of society, people are kind of 
separated vertically, you know, some higher, some lower. Mm -hmm. um, and the term that sort of encapsulates all of this uh, is this idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been talking about that on sowingtheseed.org lately. Um, are you familiar with that term? Is that a term that comes out of your training or at least in your sort of contemporary uh, I, work? It didn't come out of my historical training. Um, I, uh, what would have, uh, an equivalent of it w would be what I would call social, it's a social advantage. And there are certain, um, uh, or it's, it's related to a status mm -hmm. that could, can either be an ascribed status that you um, get, so to speak, at birth. It may be mm -hmm. the color of your skin or your sex. Um, it uh, could be other things that you, uh, you know, acquire at birth. Some things like social class or religion may be ascribed or they may be earned or achieved. In other words, uh, social class uh, is something you inherit. And as one sociologist said, uh, select your mother carefully because uh, your mother, <laughs> select her carefully, Richard, uh, she determines what social class you uh, are born into. And so in, in that sense, if it's a higher or lower class that's ascribed, but you may also become upwardly mobile or downwardly mobile. And so these social advantages or privileges um, relate to uh, these traits that we either inherit or achieve uh, through our occupation or training that we have or whatever. So I, I, for me, the concept of privilege uh, really re is what I would call, sort of in lay terms, a, a kind of social advantage. I think an important thing to understand about privilege is that it's contextual. It's not something uh, you always have in the same situation. In other words, one social advantage I have in the United States mm -hmm. is being a citizen of the United States. And that was an ascribed thing that I got at birth because I happened to be born here. Right. Now, in some countries where I might go today, it's not a social advantage. It's not a privilege. I mean, it may be, I may be in a very threatening situation if people know I'm an American. Yeah, yeah. So I think too often people think privilege is like a fixed thing, but it depends where you are, whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage. I'm a white male, okay? And so when I am in settings where there are other white people, um, it's, it's an advantage I have. I went to Temple University as a graduate student in the late 60s, and I stayed overnight two nights a week in, in an, uh, a room uh, in the community uh, close to Temple. Mm -hmm. The community is filled with people of color. And being a white man walking at night from the university over to my room, it was not an advantage for me to be white. Uh, they didn't know if I was a rent collector. They didn't know if I was someone coming, um, you know, working with the police. And so, my point is that what can be an advantage or a privilege in certain sections can get flipped upside down depending on the context or where you are. Right. And does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, I think it, it sort of shows the, the limits of some of our language to describe these social relationships that you look at, right? I mean, we often use the term minority, right, to talk about people of color and women. Somehow those things get conflated, right? People of color and women. And I think what really is going on is we're ascribing this notion that these are a group of people, you know, minorities, 
who have less advantage than white men, for instance. And so it's really But in less some about, context, it right. depends on the context. And it could be, though, that you're in a context where, you know, there is a plurality or you have, you know, for instance, 96% African-Americans and 4% uh, Caucasian people. Well, African-Americans wouldn't be a sort of statistical minority there, mm -hmm. but you might say, okay, sociologically, as you think about power dynamics, it could be that, well, African-Americans still are disadvantaged right. um, in this social setting. I mean, you see this in places where um, you might have white representative officials who are leaders over a black right. constituency, right? Um, but but it's, it's very situational, it's very contextual. Yeah. I think that's a really important idea to remind ourselves about whenever we talk about privilege, yeah. because it all depends. I mean, I'm a white man, and uh, for me, I, I did a, a, a workshop, or I didn't do it, but I was mm -hmm. a participant in a workshop on white privilege related to racism. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so... There I learned that uh, I'm a white man. If I go to uh, borrow a loan, uh, you know, get a loan from the bank, I can pretty much live wherever I want to, and they're not going to mm -hmm. raise questions or restrict me. And that's a privilege that I don't think about, okay? Right. I go into stores to shop, and I don't have to worry about them watching me, particularly that I'm going to be, you know, stealing things or shoplifting, yeah. okay? so. Off, many times, those social advantages that we have, we don't think about. We're not aware of them. Um, and again, they may be tied to very different traits depending on the situation right. and whether they're actually a social advantage or whether yeah. they're a disadvantage. Right. And they're, and they're fluid, right? I mean, our ascriptions for ourselves, the way we name ourselves or identify um, and get identified can be... Well, it, it's hard to fix, right? I mean, I, I'm thinking, as you were telling your story, I was also thinking about how... Um, when I've traveled out of the country and I have to, and maybe when I'm coming back or even when I'm going to and I have to write down my nationality. Mm -hmm. um, if you're on a plane with people of color, you'll often see them really kind of wait on that question because when they're moving out of the country, you know, the nationality is USA, right, or American. Right. But when you're in the country, you may not be able to lay claim to that as easily as your neighbor, um, right. especially your white neighbor, right? It's like sort of under which... Uh, in which context am I truly a representative right. of the United States and all that comes with that right. label? Um, and in which case am I still struggling to, to, to find this or fight for this? Right. Um, I mean, this is sort of the classic immigrant story about how you become white, right? Like, right. you know, are you Irish-American, Italian-American? Are you white yet? Are you not? Um, does Barack Obama pass now that he's mm. a president? You know, mm. all of these questions... They're complicated. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can't just say yes or no. There's usually an mm -hmm. essay to go along with or it. Or a hyphen um, to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly, right? right? That's the, probably the greatest grammatical right. uh, move you can make with it, right, is that hyphen. Um, but then you're hearing people say, well, I'm not a hyphenated American. I'm right. just an American. Well, right. if you have to talk about it, maybe not. Right, <laughs> um, right, right, right. So uh, I wonder with this, with this concept of privilege, this need to become aware of our privilege, you know, we're seeing right now in the 21st century, um, with the millennial generation especially, this idea of checking your privilege, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of communal policing or self-policing, mm -hmm. not of do you belong, but what are you doing with that social advantage you have that maybe you don't know mm -hmm. about, right? So, so I think the way it plays out is, if someone trespasses on another and they use their their social advantage to do so, their privileges, their privilege to do so. Um, 
rather than the community letting that go unacknowledged, they may say to the person, check your privilege. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of idea of, okay, well, make sure you're aware. Um, does that go along with what you've heard in your training or maybe as a sociologist or this workshop you may have gone to on privilege? Well, I, I think it? developing an awareness of it mm-hmm. is very important. And, and I think um, uh, also more than just a superficial awareness to say, well, what does it really mean? And what are the consequences of that? And how does that give me unusual access to things that I otherwise wouldn't have access to? And uh, how is my life and my uh, existential world, in a sense, shaped and controlled by my privilege? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, select your mother carefully, okay? Which is the Peter Berger uh, quote. So like, if I'm born into a different world, uh, if I made a poor choice in selecting my mother, obviously right. this is uh, tongue-in-cheek, uh, because we can't, yeah. but it has a profound difference on my life in terms of my access or denied access uh-huh. to certain things and the extent to which uh, I can exert power. I mean, privilege typically is equated with power, that uh, the more privilege you have, the more um, you can exercise power and have access to things and make things happen, so to speak. So why do we struggle to talk about it, right? Religion, race, class, politics, these are not dinner table conversations. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about with the the Peter Berger quote, you know, select your mother carefully or choose your mother carefully. Select, select. Select her carefully. Select her carefully. But you don't ever want to talk about somebody's mama, right? Like, that's kind of a no-no. That's a taboo in some way, right? You, you have to tread carefully when you talk about mothers, right? But that's, right. It says something about who we are, which is, I imagine, what Berger's getting at. So why well, well, he, he's getting at the fact that, obviously, no one can select her mother. Yeah. Okay? But depending on your mother's social class or your mother's race or your mother's ethnicity or your mother's religion you're going to be situated mm-hmm. with the uh, commensurate traits and privileges in that position when you're born automatically is the moment you're born now sure you can achieve you might mm-hmm. go on and achieve a doctorate regardless of who you are you may become the mayor regardless of who you are but mm-hmm. your that moment of birth places you into a social world with a certain number of privileges or disadvantages so why do we why do we struggle to talk about that i mean a lot of times the check your privilege conversation it stops there right, right. just that the oh well trespasses happened and you're at fault for you know speaking out of turn or using your I, I think this one way. reason mm-hmm. is because um we have this egalitarian vision particularly in the united states that everybody's created equal but they're not they're not equal and they never will be um, and we don't like to deal with that. I, I mean, it's sort of uncomfortable to say, well, well, it's true, my dad was a millionaire and I inherited all this money and so I can do all these things, or yeah, it's true, my dad was a U.S. Senator and so that gave me access and privilege into a whole lot of things, but I like to think it's because I worked hard and because <laughs> right. I'm a bright guy, and that may be a bunch of crap, mm-hmm. okay? But we don't want to we we have the the mythology that we are the ones we can thank ourselves for the hard work for being savvy for being diplomatic or whatever that enabled us to get this position or get to a certain place in life and we don't want to face the reality the hard reality 
that if we had selected a different mother, even with the same biological stuff, apart from race and gender or sex or whatever, or, or the fact of uh, our father's occupation, would make a huge difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's why we don't want to talk about it, because it minimizes, uh, to a certain extent, the, the hard work that we've done, and we want to camouflage it to say, you know, Richard, I'm just like you. Right. You know, we're, you know, we're sitting in this room and we're just the same, but we aren't. You're black and I'm white. Yeah. Okay. I'm an old man. You're a young man, <laughs> and you're smart and I'm not. So you know, things aren't a level playing field here. Yeah. And you, I mean, you spent much of your career looking at Anabaptist traditions. Okay. Um, and when, when I think. The lay public, and I can say for myself, think about uh, like the Amish, for instance, Amish right. communities. You know, they're they're perceived as, uh, and, I, and I say I think about this myself because I'm new to Pennsylvania, and so, uh, you know, I don't think I ever would have imagined that I live in Lancaster County, where it's very common for me to see Amish families. You know, on my way to school or on my way home, and um, I'm I'm thinking though they're sort of this. They're held up almost mythologically in American mm -hmm. culture as being so different or so out of time or place from what's going on in the rest of American context. But I wonder, given what you said about privilege and these social dynamics, mm -hmm. does this is this stuff a question for them? Is this a concern for such communities that uh, that seem sort of not? I, I don't think they. I, I mean, they. I don't think they think about it themselves internally. Mm -hmm. I mean. Um, but I would say as Americans, we look at them, we have like this love-hate relationship. They're like saints and they're sinners. Mm. They're like saintly, um, and that annoys us because we think, well, maybe they're self-righteous. Right. The so whenever now. Exactly. Whenever they have a glitch of some kind, then we like to pounce on that, say, well, they're sinners just like the rest of mm -hmm. us. But um, I, I would say as a community, they have certain privileges because of their otherness. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about the Amish as a group in American society. They have an exemption from Social Security, for example. They have an exemption from high school. They can stop at the eighth grade. They have an exemption from certain regulations re related to uh, child labor. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they have achieved certain exemptions, but in that sense they are privileged. But to me, rather than just talking about privilege, it's kind of a negotiation. Mm. So like in Lancaster, we say, well, they bring in millions of dollars in tourist revenue. So we have this bargain, this deal we work out. So if they keep bringing in the money, uh, you know, all the tourist money, we're going to give them some breaks in terms of uh, rules and regulations pertaining to zoning, for example, right. or whatever. So it's a dynamic exchange, uh, but in some ways they are privileged uh, because of being, um, you know, because of staying with their traditional ways of life. Because we kind of need them and like them to think about what we perceive the imagined past to be. Right. In terms of going to one-room schools and so on. So it's a complicated thing, but they are privileged, but we also get certain, the outside gets benefits yeah. from the fact that we extend these privileges to them or these exemptions to them because it generates a, a vibrant economy here in the Lancaster County area, for example. Right. And so internally, though, do you see, or sort of how do you see, I guess, I'm assuming as a social group, they deal with these social dynamics just the, like the rest of us. They may use different terms, but how, do, how does social difference work within the community? 
because they're not homogenous, right? It's right. not like well, everyone is the same cookie cutter. Right. They they are, but they aren't. And particularly nationally, there's like 40 different tribes of Amish. So mm-hmm. They're very different. Uh, and even within Lancaster community, there's like 200 different congregations. So there's a lot of variety. Um, they they don't. They, they haven't studied sociology, okay? They don't use terms like privilege and social structure and all the jargon that we use. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've gone to eighth grade, uh, through eighth grade, often many of them with one teacher. But there are differences, and uh, it's, it's complicated to explain because their community focuses on sort of communal regulations and communal dynamics that subdues and downplays individualism Mm -hmm. because individual expression is viewed as pride okay and even using your name in public or bragging about your achievements is is a no-no and part of that is because if you are trying to keep a communal society together you have to check individualism yeah and control it because individualism is a threat to the communal harmony and order mm-hmm. so where i'm going with this is some differences um or some practices uh, the, the church would uh shun them for or, or excommunicate them uh if it was if what they were doing was viewed as um debilitating to the community itself others um you know it's like uh, my, I have an Amish friend, he said, you know, Don, some people think the church regulates everything we do, but he said, for men, they don't care if we wear shorts or boxers, uh, you know, uh, and he he's points out there are many areas in which you can have individual expressions, mm-hmm. but uh, in other ones, like divorce, for example, would be a case for, of course, for excommunication, or having a television set, if you didn't get rid of it, that would be a case for excommunication as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, historian of religion, Jonathan Z. Smith, who talks about, you know, we've been talking about context and uh, ascription, and so it helps me think about sort of the concept of scriptures and canons. People say, well, oh, wow, you're bound by this book. But it's like once you understand the limits of a rule book or a scripture, right. there's all sorts of freedom that comes within right. that form, right? And so, of course, individualism, you know, everyone puts their little flair on you know, well, and the Amish are great hackers. And when it comes to technology, they hack. And, and, and hacking is not a pejorative word, okay? <laughs> but hacking means work about workarounds, how you're trying to beat the system and get around. So uh, what's amazing about their businesses is that you have this culture of restriction that has created innovation because they're trying to get around the guidelines and trying to get their, their they know exactly what the rules are with technology, but they do these workarounds. Uh, <laughs> and so you have this culture of uh, uh, innovation that's uh, fertilized by the, the restrictions in the community. Now, I could go on on that for two well, hours, but... Uh, yeah, I definitely want to return to that sometime. Um, so I'll just have to have you back. Um, and as I think about, yeah, I mean, that image itself sort of clashes with, I think, larger American perceptions of who the Amish are and what they can do, right? What their story is about. Uh, but I also think about another sort of cultural clash um, in light of all the sort of gun violence and this epidemic of gun violence in this country. 
um, I'm thinking about another sort of culture clash, and that is uh, what took place at, uh, I guess, the West Nickel Mines community. Is that right? Yes. In 2006. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's been a while for some, right. and like yesterday for others. Well, this is just south of Lancaster, um, uh, about uh, eight or nine miles, and uh, it's a very dense Amish community there. And I think the event you're talking about was uh, a day, it was October the 2nd, 2006, when a neighbor, non-Amish neighbor, uh, came into a schoolhouse and um, basically took all the kids hostage, then uh, sent the boys out um, and several adults that were there, and then um, uh, was alone with 10 young women from first grade through seventh or eighth grade. And um, basically, um, we were fairly certain he intended to sexually assault someone. We don't know if it was the kids or the teacher. but. Um, uh, the police were called in, and when he realized the police were coming or came, were on site, then he uh, eventually shot them. He tied them, tied their ankles with Ziploc ties so they couldn't run, and had them lay face down at the front of the room and just shot them into the back with an automatic pistol. Uh, five of them died, the other five survived, and four of the survivors are actually doing very well now. Mm -hmm. We're next year, uh, about a year from now, we'll come up on the 10th anniversary of this event. Um, so it was a terrible, tragic event. I mean, it was just absolutely sad. Uh, the redeeming thing that came out of it was that within six or seven hours, representatives from the Amish community went to the gunman's parents um, and also to his surviving widow. Um, these were actually different groups, uh, representatives, uh, representatives just self-appointed decided to do this, went and expressed uh, forgiveness and empathy, basically, um, and said, we want you to keep living in the community to his widow um, and to the, his parents. Uh, we want to be friends. It was kind of a, a tribal sort of thing. It's kind of like uh, uh, the forgiveness is more like, well, one of your guys did something terrible to our guys, but we're not going to retaliate. Uh, we want you to know uh, we're not going to do any exert any kind of revenge or exercise any kind of revenge, but we want you to live here. And in fact, we think your hardship and pain is probably worse than ours because your tribe bears all the stigma of this and all the shame, um, and we empathize with that. And so. This was a profound gesture, and it's happening so quickly. And so the media at first were quite critical of it as being robotic and mechanical and not heartfelt. But the story became an international story. There were over 2,400 uh, international stories just about Amish forgiveness, not the shooting, but about forgiveness coming out of this. So it was a powerful, powerful uh, story of redemption. Yeah. And, and when we think about stories, uh, there was a there's a recent uh, blog post written by Leslie DeRose-Smith. Uh, she's a religious studies scholar at Abila University. And uh, she was writing sort of in, in response and an observation of this epidemic of gun violence um, and some issues that you know came about in Oregon and, and also elsewhere. I mean, I think mm -hmm. there's a, unfortunately a great context to this gun violence. And you know, we have a lot to draw on when we speak about this issue in America. Uh, but she said this, uh, quote, guns let certain members of our society tell a very powerful story about themselves so powerful that the rest of us tend to take that version of reality for granted. And I wonder, just you know, taking reality for granted, telling our stories, um, what do you make of that? Sort of, what do you take from that horrible incident, and what does it teach us about 
the human story. Um, well, I, I, I think the Amish story is a counter narrative. Hmm. It's a counter narrative that talks and demonstrates the power of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because Richard, it touched thousands of lives, this story, thousands of lives. After this, when there was gun violence at Virginia Tech, uh, was it Sandy, um, help Sandy me. Hook? Sandy Hook. I mean, parents there asked the Amish people to come, and they did, right. to talk with them about it. I mean, it touched thousands of people in a, in a very powerful way. So, in some ways, the um, uh, you know the Amish forgiveness narrative was a kind of antidote to the um, gun violence you know power story that we've got guns, so you better shut up and just deal with us because mm -hmm. we're more powerful than you are. And here's a very counter cultural narrative that talks and demonstrates the power of forgiveness and how it can shape lives uh, in the face of gun violence. Yeah. Um, and these were, think about it, these were in, the innocent of the innocent. I mean, these 10 young Amish girls, they didn't even know what a gun looked like. Their parents, I mean, their older brothers and parents have rifles for shooting, but many of them probably never saw a pistol never didn't even know exactly what he was going to do so it, it's it's a powerful story that is a what i would call a counter narrative mm -hmm. to the the gun violence narrative right. where the where gun owners are threatening other people because of their unusual power and how that creates a, a world of reality that uh too many people subscribe to in my judgment yeah and i, and I guess when we when we think about social interaction and people expressing themselves, right? They're going to find or they already have advantages um, that dispose them or make them able to express their stories. Um, and oftentimes these, it sounds like these, you know, advantages are different. The stories we want to tell are different. And as they conflict, it's an, it becomes an opportunity not just to stop and say, well, that happened. It's just a frozen historical event. But um, as I'm hearing from this story and also what we've been discussing before, it's an opportunity to say, well, what's the next chapter? Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to quote Martin Luther King, what's the chapter that we're going to write as a result of this? Mm -hmm. You know, you could say check your privilege and shut down the conversation, but it mm -hmm. could be we're aware that something's happening mm -hmm. right now. What are we going to make of it? What does this all mean? And when we say check your privilege, if I say that to you, you need to say it to me because mm -hmm. all of us have certain privileges. It's not like just some people are privileged and others aren't. I mean, it's like in our own different ways, we all have uh, some type of social advantage or privilege, again, depending on the context. Um, and that means we should be able to have a mutual conversation, not mm -hmm. just critiquing each other, but reflecting on um, how those privileges that may be different that we have, nevertheless, make it easier or more difficult for us to navigate uh, you know, the, the walk of life that we happen to be in. Well, I guess that just means I have to have you back sometime. So, oh. Don Crable, it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. That was our guest, sociologist Donald B. Crable. His most recent books are The Amish, a companion to the two-hour PBS film by the same title, and Renegade Amish, Beard Cuttings, Hate Crimes, and the Trial of the Burgles Barbers. I'm your host, Richard Newton, and on behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Aponsuwan, thanks for being here. Till next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at Sowing the Seed, 
and we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening.